Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. Have you ever wanted a sign, some dramatic event that would prove that you're on the right lines, that you're making the right choices, that you're going in the right direction? I want to tell you a strange story about something that happened or I heard of last week in my life. It is about football, but don't stop listening or turn off if you don't like football because it's not really about football. It just happens to be uh, in connection with football. Some of you will know that I support Cambridge United, who are not a very good team, uh, who languish around the third, fourth, fifth tiers of the Football League. And uh, occasionally we get promoted, occasionally we get relegated, but most of the time we languish somewhere mid to bottom half of the league. Now, through some very strange set of events, we are top of the fourth tier of League Two. It's unexpected, not what we expected at the beginning of the season. And you ask yourself, what's going on? Is this going to last? And then something very strange happened. I have a friend who lives in America, in Atlanta, in America. And they sent me a photograph. And uh, the caption to this photograph was, guess what we see from where we are having coffee right now? I'm going to show you the picture of what they saw. It's a billboard from America, from Atlanta, and it's advertising the kit for Cambridge United. Now, imagine my friend's shock to be sat miles and miles away from Cambridge in Atlanta and to suddenly see being advertised Cambridge United as if it was completely normal. Now, is this a sign is something dramatic, some sign for my friend in Atlanta or some sign for me. So my friend in Atlanta has uh, perhaps become more convinced that Cambridge United are a viable and proper football team. We want signs. We have no idea what this sign means or how it happened, but there you go. Human beings are searching for meaning, searching for fulfillment, searching for a sense of satisfaction or contentment or peace. This is something that is the yearning of all humanity at the moment particularly. And there are many, many voices saying, do this, do this, do the other, and we will find fulfillment, we will find meaning, we will find contentment. What kind of sign might we have? I want to tell you the story in the next part of our study in John's Gospel, all about signs and fulfillment. You may remember, if you've been following our series, and if you haven't, you can go back and find it, that Jesus has fed 5,000 men and numerous other men, women, and children alongside the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. It's a remarkable miracle because more than 12 baskets of food is collected afterwards, and they have all this leftover. And that evening, Jesus tells the disciples to get into a boat and to cross away from the crowds uh, to Capernaum and to, to find a different place. And he himself withdraws away from the noise, away from the clamor for him to become king. And as the disciples are rowing across the Sea of Galilee, a storm arises and then they are shocked and frightened to see this figure walking across the water to them. And uh, Jesus reassures them in their fear. We did a whole session on how Jesus reassures us when we're afraid. He comes to them walking on the water. He gets into the boat and immediately the boat arrives at its destination, which is a bit of a miracle. Now, why all this context? Well, 
the crowds discover that Jesus has disappeared and they can count the boats. They realized he wasn't in the boat and that somehow he has gone. And so they search for him and eventually they find him on the other side of this large lake. And he tells them not to work for food that spoils, not to come in search of another miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, not to come and look for more loaves and fishes, but to look for what God really wants to provide that will endure for eternal life. And uh, they ask him, what do we need to do? And he tells them to believe. And this was where we ended our last session, believing in Jesus as Lord and as Savior and to become his disciples. So we pick it up then, John 6, verse 30. They asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, on the face of it, that seems a reasonable question. Prove that you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. But actually, he's just done this remarkable miracle the day before of feeding these 5,000 people. But not only that, he's had the miracle and the remarkable feat of turning up on the other side of the water without a boat, and they don't know how he did that. So this asking for a sign is really just a little bit rich. He's already done two remarkable things. What more do they want? What more do you need to know that Cambridge United are a proper football team and it's not a, a fantasy of my imagination? There's a billboard in Atlanta, America, advertising and saying how great Cambridge are. What more do you need? Very often there are people around us and sometimes ourselves who say, prove yourself God. And actually, it's really an excuse J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, says this, The plain truth is that it is want of heart, not want of evidence, that keeps people from Christ. They'd already had the sign of the 5,000 being fed and of the water being crossed. And Paul tells us in Romans that uh, the creation points to God, that we've already had signs that God is there. Our very own heartbeat, the existence of life points to God because life has to be created from life. Where has life come from if there wasn't a God who created life way back in the beginning? And the beauty of creation points to God. Paul says in Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The very historical nature of Jesus, that we know there was a man called Jesus of Nazareth who lived and died and was crucified by the Romans and his disciples abandoned. That's all historical facts attested by numerous other documents. And we know too that 2,000 years later the church exists and is based on the belief that he rose from the dead, that the disciples had their lives turned around and all of this points to something happening. How is it that we're still, still, still talking about Jesus? So we too have had our signs already. So it's not about asking God to prove himself more. The evidence is already there. And so in verse 31, the crowds say to Jesus, or representatives of the crowd say, our ancestors ate the manna, the bread provided 
by Moses. And again, we looked at this before. It comes from Exodus 16, where every day the people who were hungry because they had left slavery in Egypt, but because they were grumbling and complaining, God, why don't you provide? Every day he provided manna, bread from heaven. And they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And there was a a messianic belief that the Messiah would repeat that miracle. And it's interesting that Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000 does appear to be repeating that miracle. But Jesus said to them, very truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And what he says here is quite shocking. He doesn't say it is the Lord, it isn't God Almighty who provided the bread. He says, it was my father. He is giving an intimacy to the creator God who provides in Exodus 16 and an intimacy with himself that is shocking. And we've talked before in these studies about how Jesus gives all these hints that he's somebody significant and special and divine. And so in verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven And gives life to the world. And again, this is a theme we've looked at before. But what does it mean to give life to the world? Well, undoubtedly, there was a sense of the eternal joy and health after death. That the life that God gives us in its fullness will be received after our death in the new life, eternal life of heaven. Where there is no more death, no more sorrow, no more decay, no more old age, no more wrinkles, no more balding, no more pain, no more degeneration. And so the life that Jesus is bringing is that eternal life. And part of it is then. But it is also a life now. The freedom from guilt and feeling unloved. The alienation, the separation, the dysfunction in relationship with God is removed by Jesus. And he brings life now. The life of knowing we are forgiven and that we are loved and valued and that Jesus has died for us. So is this element of peace with God now. And out of that comes the third and fourth aspects of life, that of purpose and meaning, that God calls us to a new way of living. He calls us with a new commandment. He calls us to a way of living that brings fulfillment. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They long for this sense of meaning, this life that fulfills. And we come to this very famous verse. And then Jesus declared, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is sufficient and satisfying. And I want to explore that for a few moments together. What does that mean? It means that his eternity that he's promising us has no regrets for life unlived here. In other words, the life that we have in heaven won't be second best to this life. Sometimes I hear people say, I don't want to die until I've ticked off all these things on my bucket list. I don't want to die until I've had done these things. I need to say quite clearly, our bucket list is miserable in comparison to the things that heaven has in store for us. We will not get to heaven and say, oh, I wish I visited this place. I wish I'd swum with dolphins. I wish I'd achieved this skill. I wish I'd learnt this um, thing. 
I wish I'd done this other thing. Heaven will have no regrets. It will far surpass this life. And so the life that God Jesus offers us in heaven means we will never go hungry. We'll never say, oh, I wish I was back on that earth. I wish I was back in my former life. It will never happen. It's laughable to imagine it. And Jesus is sufficient and satisfying in that his forgiveness needs no works to be added. The work on the cross is full and final and enough. And we don't need to add to it effort and atonement and doing good things in order to earn God's love. There are no things that you need to do to be saved other than to receive the good news of Jesus. His life is sufficient and satisfying. And his love cannot run out. There are no other things that we need to chase after to love us in a better way than Jesus. There is no idol that is better. God is sufficient. And his call and his purpose for us is perfect. What he wants us to do with our lives in response to his love, the call to be a disciple and to live out our salvation is perfect and there needs no other achievements. If we get to heaven and we say to God, I did everything that you asked of me, we will not say, I just wish you'd asked me to do this because it would have been better. If we achieve all that God calls us to do with our lives, it will be abundantly enough and we won't get to heaven and say, oh, but I wish I'd gained this O-level, this qualification, this promotion, this job, this house, this car, this family. To fulfill his purpose and the life he's given us is sufficient. We will never go hungry. And to emphasize it, he says, we will never be thirsty again. He uses the repetition to ram home the point that that which Jesus is bringing, the life he is bringing, is enough No more hunger, no more thirst. And his guidance is wise and it needs no correction. It's not that we say, when we get to heaven, I've lived out exactly the way you wanted me to live, but actually I wish I'd disobeyed some of your commands because I would have been happier. His life for us is enough. So I want to just explore dissatisfaction for a moment or two, just to be clear on what is being offered when Jesus talks about satisfaction, never being hungry or thirsty. We might define dissatisfaction as achievements that seem pointless. This is the disease of our world, of our culture. People achieve so much and at the end of it say, why? What does it matter? Why have I done this? Why am I doing this? Dissatisfaction in our culture is purchases that don't seem enough. We shop and shop and shop and never have enough and never feel satisfied. We want more and more and more. Dissatisfaction in our culture today is relationships that disappoint, that leave us feeling there must be more. Pleasures that don't last. So we might continue to define dissatisfaction as self-esteem that seems unattainable. We just can't feel happy with ourselves. We just can't find a sense of value or confidence or peace. It's contentment that is unfound. 
It is envy that is unavoidable. We just can't help but look at others and say, if only I had what they have. If only I could be what they are. If only I could do what they do. If only I had their opportunities. Low self-esteem, discontentment, envy, and finally, unforgettable regrets. We just can't seem to move on from our mistakes or from the hurts that we've experienced in the past. So I want to sum up dissatisfaction as three core elements. It is meaningless activity. It is unhappy identity. It is past hurt or future fear. And these three elements are the elements that Jesus addresses. You see, in the life that Jesus brings, we discover that regrets are not unforgettable but that Jesus in the life he brings wants to heal the past. Through his mercy and his grace, through his work on the cross, he grants us cleansing from all that we've done wrong and the healing from the anger and bitterness that we have towards others because he gives us new plans for a future. He doesn't leave us in the broken state of where our messed up lives through our own choices or through other people's choices has left us. Rather, when we come to Jesus and offer ourselves as a disciple, he says, here is a new plan for the future. So regrets are not unforgettable, but can be cleansed. And envy is not unavoidable. Because when we come to Christ, he gives us a unique and perfect calling. He gives us different gifts that are different to anybody else. And he says, this is what I want you to do with your life that's not the same as anybody else. And it's perfect. And so contentment is not unfound. Rather, it is found. Because Jesus gives us a way a way out from what is futile. He, he takes us away from the meaningless and pointlessness of doing all that seems to be of no value. And rather, he leads us into all that we need. And he brings contentment. And rather than us live with self-esteem that seems unattainable, the cross and the love of God cleanses us from failure, as we've just said, and enables us to understand that he has died to affirm our value, that Jesus has placed a, pli a price on our head and it is his death. And so we are loved and we are given value. We are invited to be his children and adopted into his family. We are worth the death of Jesus. And he rises to invite us to spend eternity with us, with him, because he wants us in heaven, because he longs to share that joy of the future with us. So if we look at our triangle of dissatisfaction, of meaningless activity, of unhappy identity, of past hurt and future fears, we discover that the satisfaction of Jesus as the bread of life, the one who brings life, is that rather than meaningless activity, we are called and guided to a life that makes a difference, to be a disciple of Jesus. He doesn't just call us to be forgiven. He calls us to join his body, his army, his community that are representing him and seeking to bring life and hope. And he calls us and guides us individually and invites us 
to become a part of that journey. And instead of us having an unhappy identity of feeling rubbish and useless and ashamed of who we are, we have an identity of being loved and chosen by God, called to be his disciple, wanted to play a part in his kingdom. And instead of there being past hurts and fear for the future, there is a wonderful past of forgiveness and a glorious future of salvation. And so this is the destiny of those who say, Lord, we receive the bread of life. We balance. um, When we think about being called and guided, we need to balance sacrifice and rest. Fulfillment comes in this middle place of holding extremes together. We balance the times when we rest in God and we take the Sabbath and we celebrate and we give thanks for the goodness that he's given to us with the times of sacrifice and service and hard work. And when we're called, we're called to keep the Sabbath and we're called to serve God at the same time to take up our cross. And these two things live in balance. There is the balance of worship and of serving, of knowing and giving thanks and dwelling in his presence and celebrating his love and enjoying worshipping him with our words, with our lips, with our mouths, with our lives, and at the same time serving him. And these two things need to be held in balance. There's a place to coming together with the people of God and singing songs of praise. There's a place for going out into the world and serving. And we balance in the area of forgiveness and salvation. We balance the humility that says, Lord, I'm a sinner and I confess my weakness and I know my sin. We balance that with the confidence that we have the assurance to enter the very presence of God with boldness. So you see this balance in satisfaction. And this is what it means to receive the bread of life, to never go hungry and to never be thirsty. And we will say with the people who spoke with Jesus, well, what must we do? And remember, his response was to believe to receive Jesus, to receive this bread, to receive his presence in our lives. Three things to receive and believe in. To believe in and work and receive his work on the cross, that he died for us, that he has taken our sin, that we are loved, valued, and precious. To believe and receive then his call, to take up our cross and follow him, to be a disciple, to seek to copy him, to be his instrument in the places he has placed us. And to receive and believe his future of eternal life. And to live not as citizens of this world, but of the world to come. And to live with confidence that whatever we lose in this world, we will regain multitude times in the world to come. So, Jesus declared, I, Jesus, am the bread of life. I am the one who satisfies. I am the one who, if you receive, you will never go hungry again and you will never be thirsty again. And so we receive that satisfaction, that fulfillment. Our questions for reflection as we draw to a close. Firstly, what dissatisfaction do we experience? Is it in the area of actions? Is it in the area of identity? Is it in the area of our past or our future? 
In what way do our actions seem pointless? Or in what way do we feel dissatisfied with who we are and our sense of value? Or in what way does the fear of the future or the stain of the past hang on to us? Let's pray for a moment before we ask the second question. Father, we bring to you our dissatisfaction where our actions seem pointless. Lord, help us to hear the call to do what you want with our lives. Where we feel dissatisfied with who we are, where we struggle with our identity, with self-esteem, with self-worth, Lord, bring the satisfaction of knowing we are your children, loved, called, and valued. And where we're dissatisfied and unfulfilled because of the past or because of our fears or hopelessness about the future, Lord, we give our past to you. Cleanse it and heal it. And we walk with confidence into the future. And so our second question for reflection is, what do we need to embrace more fully? Is it the cross? Is it a full grasp and understanding of how the we receive what Jesus done on the cross? Or is it our calling? Do we need to fully respect and understand and, and contemplate and, and grasp what Jesus has called us to be? Or is it our future? To fully hold on to where we are going, to fix our eyes on the future uh, and, to, and what is to come rather than what is. Jesus invites us to receive him as the bread of life. He is what we need. It is his cross that we need. It is his calling that we need. It is his eternal life that we need. It's not one of these things. It is all three together. And if we embrace the cross, embrace the call to be a disciple, and embrace eternal life, we will never want for us anything else. We will be fulfilled and satisfied. Amen.